Hello and welcome to The Menu, Monaco Radio's food and drink programme. I'm your host, Chiara Rimella. Today, Monaco's Lisbon correspondent Gaia Lutz sits down with renowned Slovenian chef Anna Ross. And this is the way we are cooking, so uh, from the gardens, from the forest, from the meadows. Also in the programme, we head to Finland, where foraged mushrooms are becoming more and more popular. Today it has been raining the whole day, we are totally wet here, but it's this big enthusiasm which brings us here. Plus, Andrew Muller speaks to the Orlo 2026 Arctic Food Lab team at the Arctic Circle Assembly in Reykjavik. And we venture to the southwest of England to try a brand new luxury cider brand. All that here on the menu on Monocle Radio. First up on the menu, we head to Lisbon, where our correspondent in the city, Gaia Lutz, got the chance to sit down with renowned Slovenian chef Anna Ross. Ross was in town for a special forehand dinner cooked with Portuguese chef Marlene Vieira in her fine dining restaurant Marlene. While Vieira cooked with her native ingredients, Ross brought a taste from back home, more specifically from Slovenia's Socha Valley, where Ross's three Michelin-starred restaurant, Hisha Franco, is located. She started by telling us how she approached the menu in Portugal. Because we use super micro-local and seasonal approach, that means that we are in touch with the tradition by using uh, local produce that uh, have never been globalized, so they have very special flavor. So, for instance, uh, okay, we brought a trout in the Socha Valley. We never have been eating other fish, but there was uh, a beignet made out of the cornflour filled with the fermented cottage cheese, which is very typical for our mountains, with uh, wild chives, smoked trout raw, and um, topped with uh, roasted polenta flour. That is reinterpretation of old uh, uh, dish from uh, Slovenia high mountains, I mean, from our valley. That is actually polenta cooked over open fire for 45 minutes so there is smokiness inside and then it's covered with warm cottage cheese and some grated cheese on the top that's one of the interpretation then we brought yesterday uh, the barley that is cooked like um, orzotto with um, green beans and uh, smoked egg and the, it is the reinterpretation of isprencek which would be a, a barley soup that is cooked with usually with beans and there is a piece of like a smoked pork inside. And and just as we got into this um, this conversation about the Slovenian products and the landscape, obviously you, you've become an ambassador for, for your country, for not only the culinary traditions, but also for, also for the landscape, also for almost tourism, also for... Can you tell me what, what makes, um, in, in a nutshell, it's a hard question, Slovenia, um, such a special landscape to be working with specifically in the Socha Valley where, where your restaurant is based in. What is so special for you about, about that place? Well, first of all, Slovenia is uh, uh, probably the one of the five greenest countries on the world. Now, maybe it is proven. After Scandinavian uh, countries, uh, we are straight there on the list. So, uh, and this is the way we are cooking. So, uh, from the gardens, from the forest, from the meadows. And I believe, uh, since we don't have a lot of industry, most of Slovenia is a countryside, rural part of it. Um, I honestly uh, think that, of course, uh, having so incontaminated landscape reflects on the quality of the produce we use. So, uh, 
if let's say we all know Portugal for amazing seafood, we the world is recognizing Slovenia, beautiful products which come from nature, from the forests, meadows, gardens. And can I ask you a little bit about about hospitality in a broader sense? Because maybe a philosophical question, but in some senses we see what's happening in the world today, especially in the gastronomics, and there's so much synergy coming from from globalization and from people meeting each other and talking. At the other sense, sometimes I feel we forgot the true meaning of hospitality, which is to host, to welcome someone. It's not necessarily just the, the you know, the very crazy creative, but there's a, the sense of hosting, right? And I think in, in Isha Franco, what a lot of people have renowned you for is still having the sense of welcoming someone. How do you see these, these two worlds of, you know, experimentation and being bold and also never forgetting that hospitality is about offering a warm welcome to visitors? Well, first of all, uh, um, you know, the hospitality on a countryside has always been slightly different from hospitality in the cities. So Hisha Franco is not that uh, classic uh, cold-blooded restaurant where you are scared uh, about, I don't know, a fork falling on the floor or, oh my God, uh, splitting a glass of wine. It's about embracing you with uh, all warmth, we can handle but especially what i repeat to my my team all the time this is your home you are host so welcome guests in your home and uh, we have very young super talented team um the majority i think is around 24 25 but i think uh, you know when you get an unfinished material and you can somehow shape it how you want this is how um, the team of Isha Franco has been shaped so not only that the hospitality comes from their heart but i think it is so important that i allow to every each one of them service especially, uh, you know, to shine in their own personality because only like that they can be great hosts. We are today actually opening a new place in the heart of Ljubljana. The name of the restaurant is Yaz by Anna Roche. And uh, yesterday I wrote a letter to the team um, who is today doing the soft opening. So we are actually trying that, uh, you know, never forget Yaz is your home and you are the host and the guests are your guests. They are not the guests of the empty space. Yeah, I think, you know, when you get to hotels and you see there is no more reception, everything is automatic. Or you go to the airport and there's just machines talking to you and you have to do everything by yourself. I'm thinking like, we just forgot a hotel is a hospitality. Even the airport is a hospitality. You know, um, we need uh, contacts. We need uh, human relations. And I, I don't want to talk to a machine. So the world is uh, losing a lot of personality. Um, let me ask you as well about the role of the chef. I know it's a bit of a, a question that a lot of people ask, but I just find it so fascinating how at one point maybe, you, you know, people expected of Anna Ross or every other chef, you know, a nice meal. And all of a sudden we look at the chef as, as someone who can do much more than, than produce a nice meal. It's someone that has the, the power to talk about sustainability, has the power to talk about, you know, tourism of an era, to talk about the local production, the pro ethical production methods, has the power to be a role model to female chefs. Do you find that these different roles that are now sort of put on, on, on chefs uh, put pressure on you or do you, do you rejoice in being able to speak at these different platforms and not just at the food you make? Well, I think I belong to the generation of uh, the chefs who, you know, do you remember supermodels like Linda Evangelista and uh, Naomi Campbell and uh, Heidi Klum? I think they're 
they said it's unique like it has never happened before it will never happen again that was like the supermodeled and that doesn't exist anymore i think i caught like a train uh, or somehow i was in the right moment in the right place uh, to be a part of that super chef role which uh, for instance after chef's table i actually burned out because i wasn't ready for so much attention but then once you understand that you have a platform uh, for your voice you can change things for better and then you start applying uh, applying that to your everyday life and you know it's not about just being the chef which has a platform uh, there is also action that is needed so for instance during pandemic we helped uh, farmers by creating a line uh, of products that was through technicians in the industry industrialized uh, where we helped farmers you know to sell out things that remained uh, in their storage because nobody was buying fresh produce from milk to cottages to sour milk to lamps to so many so many different vegetables and um, you know at that moment i thought like if i was no one i would probably n- never be able to do something like that um so uh, let's say today i'm in an open conversation with the slovenian prime minister talking about how to change the eating habits of slovenians uh, which you know as in the whole world too much meat consumption too much protein consumption in general and you can see that you can change the things it's not just in words for the rest at the end of the day we are just working people i i really don't want to have a status of a rock, a rock star i'm still there apply, uh, replying to most of my emails myself uh, uh, doing the interviews myself writing texts myself i'm not allowing to any pr agency to do it and i believe that is that is how the things uh, should be if being a rock star means you can help the world to be a better place then i'm accepting it for the rest you know i still uh, need to work hard to you know 80 people depend on me so on a lot of my decisions and uh, i'm taking that, that responsibility very seriously can i ask what's next for anna ross i mean you already said that you have the restaurant being open today and what's next for slovenia i'm interested because you've opened the path for a lot of chefs i guess in slovenia it's changed a lot we were saying the last time i visited was 10 years ago how do you see things changing over there in the culinary sense Slovenia is doing amazing. We are having probably one of the highest numbers of stars uh, per person. Like we are 2 million people only rating. There is 11 restaurants with stars, which is really incredible. Uh what Slovenia is missing in this moment and what uh, uh, like Portugal is so strong on is uh, you know uh keep uh keep in touch with or like uh, understand and preserve uh, the traditional food so in slovenia it is very difficult to find a place where uh, you can understand uh, uh, what the traditions or the legacy of slovenian cuisine is you know we we've been through a very difficult time of socialism uh, uh, where a lot of culture has been just somehow cancelled from the memory of people uh, at everything was the same like you went to a restaurant in a mountain or in on the seaside but the menu has been like a copy paste uh, one of each other full of food that doesn't really belong to our place like um, serbian grill and like uh, where are slovenian zlikrovinch truckly people just forgot about them 
So I think like in this pyramid uh, uh, of dining, like where I believe the base is knowing the tradition and then you go up to fine dining, we miss a lot this lower lower part of the pyramid, uh, which you see how much we miss it or how much we love it. My ex-husband, for instance, has a small place in the heart of Kubarid, uh, so three kilometers from Hisha Franco, where he brought back like all uh, traditional, uh, uh, like really like he digged into tradition what people have been eating and the place is always packed not only tourists but also locals go and eat frika polenta strukli uh, the way people have been eating once and now we call that place funky but really i think every village should be having a place like that and you know in lisbon you go to ramiro for instance and everybody's there there is locals there is also tourists but you go there because you want to be in touch with something that is Portuguese, or you go to Taverna um, uh, de Flores, it's the same, no? You don't want to eat a sophisticated French dish, but you want to eat what is Portuguese. And and you want to understand how the Portuguese have been eating, and with that you also see the future of the food. Next, we head to Finland, where foraged mushrooms are becoming more and more popular in both home and restaurant cooking. Finland has over 200 kinds of edible mushrooms and anyone is free to pick as many as they like anywhere they go. Our Helsinki correspondent Petri Burtsov joined a group of mushroom lovers who took part in a foraging weekend organized by one of the city's most upscale hotels. It's a rainy morning in eastern Helsinki and a group of 12 mushroom enthusiasts venture into a small forest clad in waterproof jackets or carrying large woven baskets. It doesn't take long before someone spots a rare delicacy growing near a spot. This group is taking part in a popular mushroom weekend organized by one of Finland's best-known mushroom lovers, Saimi Hoyer, together with one of Helsinki's most iconic luxury hotels, St. George. That a luxury hotel would jump on the mushroom bandwagon is the latest sign that Finland is experiencing a veritable mushroom boom. To be fair, mushroom picking has always been popular in Finland, but it has mostly been done by those Finns living in the countryside. It is only recently that all those living in larger cities too have started to flood their social media feeds with photos of baskets brimming with the likes of chanterelles and porcini. Saimi, how many edible mushrooms does Finland have? Many, 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 but uh, those which uh, I think are really good, 70, 80, good, really good ones. And then there are those which are amazing <laughs> that you almost faint when you Can you give an example of, of one of those fa- fainting mushrooms? <laughs> <laughs> so there is this one black um, mushroom, um, Hygrophorus camarophyllus, which, is, uh, which um, smells like uh, musk or honey. I eat it, I cook it as, as um, kind of a really spicy food, Moroccan food. And I have to ask you now, um, we've been walking here in the forest and you obviously, you are so experienced, you can tell all the best spots by just looking at them. But 
to, to somebody who's not experienced, uh, let's say somebody listening to this show in London and travels to Finland to pick, pick mushrooms, uh, how do they, I mean, when you walk in the forest, how do you find the mushrooms? What, how, what do you need to know? You should always go to the forest with a person who knows the forests, who knows uh, what kind of uh, mushroom grows in what kind of forest. Because if you just read the mushroom books, you see the pictures, but um, it depends how mushroom is in that picture. Uh, when the picture has been taken in the morning, in the evening, what is lightning? Uh, is it raining like today or is it shiny day, very dry day? Today it has been raining the whole day. We are totally wet here, but it's this big enthusiasm which brings us here. Next it was time to head back to the hotel where we had started the day early in the morning with a mushroom-infused cocktail, of course. While cleaning the mushrooms ahead of preparing the evening meal, I thought I'd ask St. George's managing director why the hotel, known to be one of the city's most luxurious, decided that people should put on their wellies and rain ponchos and head out into the forest in search of mushrooms. General Manager here at St. George's Hotel in Helsinki. Talk to us a little bit about the background. Why did you decide to organize this mushroom event? People, when they come to Finland and when they come to Nordics, they seek somehow experiences which are close to the nature. If you think about the forest, so forest means also uh, space, peace, Here in Finland, it's also safe. Uh, we thought that those are the elements also for well-being for Finns. Why couldn't they be well-being elements also for guests who come here from abroad? Soon it was time to start preparing for the evening's feast. A 12-course menu cooked using the mushrooms we picked today with the help of the hotel's executive chef, Jussi Ylital. He was spoiled for choice as we presented him with a bounty of various Finnish forest mushrooms such as horns of plenty, porcini, chanterelles, candy caps, yellow feet and much more. I asked Ulitaloi Finland's mushroom boom has reached the kitchens of Helsinki's top restaurants too. I think, yes, I think that the young chefs are more uh, aware about the different kind of forest mushrooms. Uh, let's say that 10-15 years we more uh, use like uh, mushrooms that was easy to available uh, around the year. But I think that the seasonal is more stronger and stronger every year. What would you say are some of the most popular mushroom dishes that you can find in restaurants in Finland? We have actually quite strong classics, uh, but I, I think that the, the most are like in, in the sauces, in the, the, the main course. And the starter we actually pickle a lot. So, like today, we're gonna eat pickled mushrooms with the starter, and you know, cream and butter loves mushroom, and mushroom love cream and butter. So, basically, from the pasta sauce to to the main course sauce, everything goes. And and is it easy now? We're talking about you know, we've been we spent the day in the forest picking, uh, foraging for wild mushrooms, uh, but is it? I mean, from a restaurant's point of view, how easy or how difficult is it to use these wild mushrooms on on the menu? I think those restaurants are winner on this. Uh, it's about the location. We are now center of Helsinki, so it means that somebody need to pick up the mushroom for us. But I know my colleagues around the Finland, they can go if the location is right. You can go to the forest and pick yourself the mushrooms. 
it need to have the variation. Customers need to understand that some of the mushrooms are not available, but there's some mushrooms that is available all the time. Mushrooms are available anywhere where there is a forest. Yes, some countries have limitations on which mushrooms you're allowed to pick, but it is safe to say that locally foraged mushrooms are still a relatively underutilized resource in both home and restaurant cooking. With people increasingly conscious of where their food comes from, and with vegan food getting more and more popular, mushrooms really are the food of the future. And restaurants are waking up too to the availability of fresh ingredients right at their doorstep. For Monocle in Helsinki, I'm Petri Burtsov. Petri Burtsov with that report. You're listening to The Menu. Next, we head to Reykjavik, where the Monocle radio team was recently in attendance at the Arctic Circle Assembly. The gathering is the region's biggest, hosting over 3,000 participants from 70 countries and is the largest network of international dialogue and cooperation on the future of the planet. Whilst there, Monocle's Andrew Muller met with Laura Sorsa, policy advisor at the Olo Arctic Food Lab. The northern region of Finland has recently been awarded the title of European Capital of Culture 2026 and the lab's aim is to bring together and celebrate those operating in Orlo's food and gastronomic culture as well as promote the development of the local and sustainable culinary industries. Andrew started by asking Laura to describe the job of the Arctic Food Lab. So Arctic Food Lab is part of Olo 2026 because Oulu is a European capital of culture in 2026. So Arctic Food Lab is one of our culture programs, and we focus on the local food culture in Oulu region. So we do like a lot of work to embrace our local ingredients and the food culture we have there. It's not only for the visitors that are coming to visited Oulu, but also for the locals that they understand how special food ingredients and food culture we have. Is is Oulu's uh, food culture something really distinctive and different even within Finland? Well, I think it's... Uh, in Finland, basically, it's quite the same. But we have, like, quite young food culture because of the war. We have to get, like, self sufficient mm-hmm. so we like many families had like their own potato fields in their backyard and you know we have to survive so this is the the war with russia you're talking about and uh, no yeah like 500 yeah. years ago yeah <laughs> so yeah it's like getting like more rich all the time but we use like a lot of basic ingredients like potato and meat and yeah this kind of things so is there something you would think of as a, a signature Olu dish? Well, you have one traditional Olu dish. You, it's called rössypottu. But, like, I don't think, like, you can find it, like, very easily anymore. When I was uh, in elementary school, we had it, like, every week. But basically, uh, it's a simple stew. It's prepared with a combination of potatoes, pork, uh, smoked bacon, onion, salt, black pepper, and blood sausage. In recent years, has there been more interest in, in local ingredients in Olu? Are people kind of seeing what was always valuable about them? 
Yeah, I think the interest towards uh, local food is like uh, raising because uh, it's very important to be to have the food safety and to respect what kind of food we have uh, in our area, and that's also why we have to to work to support the local food producers because it's important that not all the food is in imported from the other countries. So I think there is like growing interest, but it's still very difficult because the local food can be very expensive mm. comparing to the food important. That that's also what we are working in Arctic Food Lab. We are like helping the local food producers and entrepreneurs to like run their businesses. So so thinking ahead to 2026, how big a part of Olu's offering do you want Olu's cuisine and Olu's produce to be? Well, of course, we want it to be as big as possible. And there's going to be like many interesting cultural events on 2026. And we want, of course, that all in in all these events, there will be local food available and people are interested in our local ingredients. And yeah, of course. And we are also planning like some food-related events. Like for example, this summer, it was first time we tried this long table uh, <laughs> picnic in the center of Oulu and all the people were like free to come there and eat their own food uh, with their friends and family. And people were talking with strangers and getting like new network. It was very, very great. Andrew Muller there speaking to Laura Swarza. British cider often has a reputation as a sickly sweet alternative to beer. However, one UK-based brand is trying to change the drink's public perception. Showerings, which launched earlier this year, is a Somerset-based cider house whose debut drink is what they call a luxury triple vintage cider. Its founder Nick Showering's mission is to develop a cider using delicate viticultural techniques for a result that can be enjoyed as an alternative to wine with food. The elegant beverage is already a staple menu item at several London restaurants, including Cinder in St John's Wood and Zephyr in Notting Hill. So this programme's producer Monica Lillis headed down to England's cider-making region of Somerset to see what all the fuss is about. It's a warm early autumn morning in Somerset and I'm at one of the county's many apple orchards. This region of the southwest of England is renowned for its fruitful cider making industry and today I'm here to meet founder of Showering Cider, Nick Showering. When I arrive and walk up to the fragrant parallel rows of trees, a tractor is already hard at work shaking the apples off for this year's harvest. This is a Dabonet apple mm-hmm. and probably the main apple that goes into the cider but in this orchard we've got about eight varieties so this year is going to be a really good year for the apples um, because we've had a lot of rain earlier in the year which means the apples become quite juicy Mm -hmm. whereas last year we had that ridiculously hot summer so there was very little rain which means the apples are tiny but because of the sun they were so really sweet so that can kind of affect the cider because the sweetness in the apples and the volume of juice content. So this year, obviously a lot of fruit. So what does that mean in terms of like the taste of the apples? So last year the apples were really sweet, yeah, but not a lot of juice. This year they're going to be probably less sweet, but very juicy. 
And so how that affects the cider is slightly lower in strength because you've got less sugar there for the yeast to kind of turn into alcohol. And yeah, all these, all these different sort of factors can totally affect how the cider tastes. When it comes to cider making, for Nick Showering, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. He founded his iteration of Showering Cider this year, but his relatives have been pressing apples and making award-winning cider under the Showering's name for nearly two centuries, passing through 14 generations. Well, my family have been making drinks, and particularly cider and perry, for 180 years uh, from the same town in Somerset. So it kind of runs in the family. And I naturally wanted to get involved and... Ever since a young age, childhood almost, you're always talking about drinks and recipes around the dining room table, so it was like a natural progression. Um, and about eight years ago, we reinvested in our cider mill to create one of the state-of-the-art cider mills in the country. And at that point, we put our heads together as a family with our head cider maker, Bob Court. And we thought if we've got one of the best cider mills, we should have one of the best ciders. So we started this project of showering cider and we came up with the idea of a triple vintage where we apply a wine technique to cider. In the same way as wine, showering cider is formed slowly and the cider is created by blending a mixture of vintages. The product is then allowed to sit and settle for at least four months. This way, the sharper edges of the tannins and acidity soften and allow the beverage to become fruity and full-bodied. Cider is very similar to wine in the fact that it's a fermented fruit Um, it's just whether or not people have applied the same level of technique to it Um, and in France and other big winemaking countries they go to extreme lengths and take extreme care over their product whereas I think cider unfortunately in the UK has taken a bit of a a less lesser approach towards that and gone to a slightly mass market where you can use slightly cheaper apples or a lower juice content or you know not even make make it from 100% apple juice but if you do take that care and you do sort of have a no expense spared approach you can really make a drink which is I think can compete with um, with, with some of the fine wines um, and there does seem to be a little bit of movement in the UK at the moment where people are putting that extra effort in and you can just taste it in the product and especially for anyone who's sort of an adventurous foodie because red and white wine have always paired very well with food and they're the classic go-to but if you can find a cider that's good enough you can open up some unbelievable flavor combinations with your food so like a i don't know lamb curry or a slow roasted pork something relatively heavy but not a classic red wine pairing just goes incredibly well Um, and it's really exciting because you can just open up a whole new category of flavours. We then travel seven miles north to the showering cider mill in the market town of Shepton Mallet. The mill has been used by the family since the 1840s and it's here where they continue to press, filter, ferment, age and bottle the next generation of showering cider. On site, I try some of the freshly bottled blend. The result is a crisp, dry and golden drink with depth and complexity, which is perfect for sipping on a cool autumn evening. Monica Lillis there with that report.
And that's all for this edition of The Menu. Remember that we are back with a new episode again on Friday at 2000 London time. That's at midday in San Francisco. Also, don't forget to tune in to our spin-off show, Food Neighborhoods, for a tour of some of the world's tastiest destinations. I am Chiara Rimella. This program was produced by Monica Lillis and our studio engineer was Callum McLean. Once again, we finish this program with a dinner soundtrack recommendation. Here is Mushroom Punch by Zella Day. Thanks for listening and until next week. Like